Heavenly Father, in the middle of uh, a season of what seems to be great trauma in the world and great pain and loss, whether we're talking about hurricanes or whether we're talking about earthquakes or whether we're talking about situations like what happened in Nevada, Father, uh, we live in a world that is broken and that is in desperate need of people who recognize both the brokenness and the only solution in this world to that brokenness. So Father, as we spend a few minutes today, Lord, um, I pray that you would use this week, man, to communicate the words of an eternal, loving, all-powerful God who desires and has already been with us and is going to be with us for the next few minutes, I pray that you would come, Lord, and communicate to our hearts exactly what each individual needs to hear, myself included, and that you would move with great power in our affections, in our desire to pursue you, to love you, um, and to do something about the brokenness in this world. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians 1. Today is uh, kind of a special day uh, because um, we're going to be looking at something that is, uh, I feel, central to what Risen Hope is about, and you'll see why in a second here. Uh, for the last few weeks, if you've been with us, we've been going through the first few verses of the book of Colossians, and we've been looking at God's grace in salvation, what faith is, these different attributes that Paul is holding out to the Colossian church. <clears throat> And um, we finally come to a word that I've been waiting for since the very beginning, actually since months before when I realized that Colossians was where we we're going to be. Um, and that word is hope. And you can already see probably where I'm going because the name of the church is Risen Hope. And so we're going to be spending our time today looking at this word hope as it appears in Colossians 1. And we're going to be asking some questions. We're going to be asking what is this hope that Paul is talking about in the book of Colossians? And why is it so critical to his message to them? Why is it the linchpin of his message? Why is it so crucial for us to understand it? Um, and what does it have to do with the gospel? What does it have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died and rose again to provide us with forgiveness and newness of life? And so those are the questions we're going to ask today. And so let's, uh, we're going to actually start a little bit different than we started last week. <laughs> we started with verse 1. We're moving on now. We're actually going to see progression this week, uh, starting with verse 3. Colossians 1. So it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So the line we're diving into today, obviously, is this line, this phrase, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the Colossian church, these Colossian people, they believe in Jesus Christ, and they have a love for all the saints. And Paul says, the reason why that's true is because you heard the gospel, and in the gospel, there was this thing, this hope 
And this hope laid up for you in heaven is what caused by the power of the Holy Spirit for you to have faith and for you to love all the saints. <clears throat> and um, so this hope, to some degree, and to a major degree actually, is the fulcrum and the motivating factor for their conviction about who Jesus is, for their assurance about who he is. And the big question we have today is this, what is this hope? What is the hope that Paul is talking about here, and why is it so critical for us to understand? Why is it important for us today? So to answer that question, what I want to do is I want to stay at ground zero a little bit here, which is the book of Colossians for us, and figure out what is in Paul's train of thought as he's going through and describing this hope and communicating this hope. What is he thinking about here? Um, Colossians 1.12 says that the Father has qualified us, the Colossian church, and anyone who has faith in him to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now this, this word inheritance, the Father has qualified us to share in it. And that inheritance that he's talking about, as we go through the book of Colossians, you'll see that's actually the hope of the gospel. Whatever he's referring to in this hope is the same thing as the inheritance that he's talking about. They're, they're connected. Colossians 1, 25 through 27 gives us more information about this. Paul says to them, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This word of God is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To God, or to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's that word again, hope. <clears throat> so what Paul's saying here is this, I'm a minister for Christ Jesus. God gave me stewardship, and he gave me stewardship over believers, even the Colossian believers, which we find out later, he hasn't even seen these guys before. He's never, he's never laid eyes on them. They haven't seen him, and he says, I have an angst for you to know Christ, um, people who I've never even seen before. So this stewardship is for Gentiles broadly, but Colossian Gentiles. Paul is called to preach to these people, and this stewardship is that preaching. And so how does Paul respond to this stewardship? He makes it his life's mission to preach to these people. And uh, there is nothing, to Paul at least, there's nothing more significant than communicating this message. This message is directed at one group of people. Saints, those who God chooses to reveal the gospel to. And what this means is that when the gospel goes out from Paul or when it goes out from Epaphras or when it goes out from anybody, what happens there is that it is, when it's faithfully preached, it is God who is making known to them this hope. That the hope that's in the gospel is being communicated by God through Paul. And um, this hope is, he describes it, Christ in you the hope of glory. We just had the sun come out and a sermon about hope. Praise God. That's awesome. So um, what is he talking about here? Christ in you. This is a weird phrasing for him to use. Um, <clears throat> in Colossians 3, we get a glimpse and some clarity <clears throat> about what this is. He says in Colossians 3, for you, so anyone who is trusted in Christ, anyone who believes in Christ Jesus, you have 
died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So last week, if you guys remember, or if you weren't here, we talked about what it means to be in Christ. A huge reality for Paul that he constantly pushes forward in every letter that he's got. What it means to be (coughs) woven into Christ. This text definitely speaks to that. But it also talks about something that hasn't happened yet. Something that is to come. It says that Christ is our life. And that shouldn't surprise us because we know that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus was very aware that he was the life. And he constantly told people, I am the life. And scripture testifies to this. It, it, uh, the source, scripture says that the source of our living right now, um, uh, according to the beginning of Hebrews, is that Jesus Christ is, holds all of it together. Our very existence is reliant on him. And he is not only just the substance underneath us, but he is the focus of our existence. Because it says in Colossians 1.16 that all things were made for him. The purpose of all things ultimately has one one name, Christ Jesus. And we are part of all things, so that's That includes us. Our life is for him. But what is Paul referring to here when he says that Jesus Christ is our life and one day when he appears, when he appears, we too, in a way, will appear. And we will appear with him in glory. Now there are many passages in the Bible that depict what's going on here and catch it from a specific angle. What Paul's saying here is probably most clearly communicated in terms of its meaning, at least in my opinion, in Romans 8. So we're going to go to Romans 8, verse 18. We're going to read this text, and I want you to think about what he's saying in Colossians and try to frame up how there's connections here. Paul says in Romans 8, verses 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there's that word again, glory. The glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation, the creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is an inexhaustible text in the Bible. I could literally spend a year on that and barely scratch the surface, just those words. What it means, what the implications are for our lives now, and what our future will be like, (laughs) what the future of the entire universe will be like. So what are some of the things that he's saying here? First, he's saying that there is a kind of glory. There's a glory that belongs to all of God's children, every single one of his children. And Paul is saying that this glory that is coming to us, that's going to be revealed, it is the sufferings of this life that we experience now are, are not even comparable 
to it. The sufferings in this world, and keep in mind, I mean, we've been reminded in the last few weeks of the sufferings of this world. They are great. And they are many. And uh, whether you're talking about what I was mentioning earlier when we were praying, earthquakes, hurricanes, uh, madmen with machine guns, all of these are what Paul is referring to when he says these sufferings or the sufferings in these present times, the agony that is in this world right now, the brokenness, all of it, horrible and terrifying. Paul is saying for the, for the child of God, for the one who is in Christ, <laughs> they are nothing compared to what will be revealed. They can't hold an intense, they, a candle to the intensity of the glory and the beauty that will come to us one day. And that's pretty amazing because we have a very jacked up, messed up world. Our world is not right. There are things broken in it. And it needs much healing and much restoration. In this passage, we see how and why this world is the way it is. It says here that the world was subjected to, consigned to, futility. It was plunged into corruption and death. And this was because of sin, like we read last week. Sin is the cause for this. Now, because of what happened in the fall, death reigns in Adam. And through the running centuries, every single year, it hasn't stopped reigning. And here's the thing. I don't need to... I actually don't need to do a lot of work to convince anybody that this is the case. Um, I just need to get you in front of like a cable news network for five minutes or throw a newspaper in front of you and you will, no matter if you're a believer or not, agree that there is something deeply wrong with the way the world is. (laughs) But here's the thing. Um, If that was the last word that this book has to say about it, we would have no reason to hope. We'd have no reason for joy. We'd have no reason to cope with this reality. I was actually talking about the Nevada situation with a friend of mine who was a police officer. Yesterday we were talking, and um, he was giving some details that I didn't know. And it is, um, it is staggering um, to think about and to contemplate the kind of things that have to go on in somebody's mind for a situation like that to happen. And this is the world that we live in. And in other countries, this happens all the time for different reasons um, and for similar reasons. But here's the deal. This is not the last word. Look what Paul is saying here. He says, creation was subjected to futility. Yes, it was subjected to futility, not willingly. And that means that creation didn't say, hey, I want to be subjected to futility. Adam and Eve didn't say, you know what? I would really like to be subjected to futility here. The entire cosmos did not want this to happen. It wasn't willingly, but it was subjected, and there's a source, a him, who subjected it. Now, Paul doesn't mention this person's name, but he does mention this person's motivation. The motivation is in hope. Want to know why the world is the way it is? There is, underneath all of the misery, a profound hope. And that hope, if you read between the lines here and the rest of Romans 8 and Scripture, you see in Genesis 3 that it is God 
who is subjecting the world to futility, and he is doing it in hope. So now, don't get me wrong. Um, the reason that the world is subjected to futility right now is definitely connected to sin. The curse in Genesis 3 was justice for what had happened. Futility and corruption for the entire cosmos, if you can comprehend the, 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 the breadth of that, was not an overreaction to what happened in Eden. We have a tendency to feel like that was a real, that curse and the fracturing of creation was a little bit of an overreaction to someone grabbing a fruit off a tree. It's not an overreaction. And in fact, I would say it's actually an underreaction to what should have been done. God is gracious. I want you to think about it from this perspective too. (laughs) In putting a face on the moral horror of what Adam did, which was saying, you know, I'd rather not have you, God, but I would like to be God and have my own kingdom. The moral horror of that event is very clear and opaque in what we see in the ruin across this world. God is being actually very gracious in giving us a glimpse of what sin looks like through his eyes. And therefore, as horrific as this world is, we have now some kind of clarity of what it's like for God to look into the heart of somebody who says, I don't want you, the one that I was made for. But the good news is this. Ultimately, that wasn't why the world was subjected to futility. It was subjected to futility in hope. (laughs) So this misery that we experience in life, pain, whether you're stubbing your toe or whether you're reading something in the newspaper that you just can't believe happened, all of those things have a purpose. They have a hope that's rooted to it. Um, And here's why. We're going to go to the cross real early in this one. (laughs) Now, because of the way the world is, the God of the universe who made it perfect can enter into the pain and the ruin and he can take on flesh and embrace the futility and the corruption until it crushes him to death. And then in that death, he purchases the freedom of his children. He buys his children back. He secures their hope. In this act of sacrifice, God, by experiencing the very punishment that was deserved by them for their abandonment of him, (coughs) he experiences the greatest possible loss in this moment, the loss of his son. He is able to get them back, bring them back home. So think about it for a second here. Without any ruin in response to the sin that was committed, there would be no redemption from it. Without any futility, there would be no freedom from the rebellion of sin. This might help. God, in order for the curse of thorns had to be leveled against Adam in order for them to be pressed against the brow of Christ's head. You get no cross, you get no redemption from sin if there's no pain that God can enter into. Without this transaction, we would forever be in prison to our sin. You see, the only way, the only way that this could be mended, 
our brokenness inside here is by the universe being broken and then God entering into it, absorbing all of its brokenness and healing it from the center. Now, what did this accomplish for us? That's the hope that we're looking for. (laughs) And it must be now, if we've wrapped our brains around the extent of what it cost him, a great and massive hope. So we're going to go to, for the rest of our time today, 1 Peter 1. Um, this passage, I've been trying to stay near Paul in our text, just so that we understand his language, we understand his flow of thought. Um, but I'm breaking this a little bit. We're going to Peter. Um, you'll see a lot of similarities, despite uh, the fact that there are different authors here. But um, this passage is central to Risen Hope. This passage is formative to my heart's desire and really what I feel God's calling us to be as a community uh, in all of the neighborhoods represented here and in Kingsgate and, and abroad. Um, so I want you to listen to the, this passage, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Listen to what he describes and how he describes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, what is this telling us? What is this living hope that has, at the very beginning of his letter to these Christians, caught Peter's attention? Let's unpack it from the beginning. First, he says, according to God's (coughs) great mercy, he is clear at the start. The origin of everything he's about to tell us is one being, God. There is no other source There is no other catalyst. There is no other motivation. It is from the great, massive mercy of God. God's primary disposition to an unbeliever that he is calling to himself is an enormous and powerful exertion of mercy. So what is the effect of this mercy? The effect of this mercy (laughs) is that he causes a person to be born again. This mercy has a purpose, and it is to cause an unbeliever to believe who previously didn't. And that transaction, that that, that transition is called being born again or the new birth. And we looked last week at Titus 3 briefly, uh, where we saw how, how this happens. The Holy Spirit baptizes an unbeliever's heart in the water of regeneration. That's the Holy Spirit's presence. And what happens in that moment is huge. It is incredibly huge. The heart comes alive, and that person is not the same again. He or she is never the same again. (laughs) They are different. They are completely new. And this is what it means to be born again. The old man dies, and the new man rises from the ashes. And this is a miracle. You may not think what happened to you in the moment that you trusted in Christ was a miracle. But verses like this exist in the Bible to tell you it was. 
It was a prodigious, massive move of God in the heart of an unbeliever to awaken faith. <clears throat> Entire worlds in your soul shifted in order for you to become a brand new human being. Now, he has caused us to be born again. Now, the question we should ask next is why, or for what, or to what? Peter doesn't leave us hanging. We are born again to a living hope. A living hope. This is not a dead hope. This is not a false hope. This is not a fleeting hope that will go away one day. This is a hope that is alive. And the reason why he says here is because something insane happened in the middle of human history. Something crazy but actually real happened in the middle of human history. <clears throat> this hope was secured because something historic took place. This is what it was. A man who was dead looked at death in the eyes and said no for the first time. He looked square at death in the eyes and said, not today. That's not how this story is going to end. No. And get this, he stopped being dead on his own. And of course, Acts 2 says it was impossible for him to remain dead. Do you know who he is? God, fully man, fully God, Christ Jesus, at the center of human history, is a fulcrum, and that is the resurrection. It is the hinge on which everything hangs. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is, for us, a channel, a Mariana Trench-level deep channel that a living hope comes surging at us at infinite speed. The resurrection of Christ Jesus is how we get this, this living hope. And because it's the resurrection... I think we can go a little bit further beyond saying it's living hope <laughs> because it is alive. Yes, it is alive, but it will never die. It will never go away. This hope is forever. So in some ways, it is a, a risen hope. And that should mean a lot to us because that means that this hope isn't ever going to pass out of existence. It will be forever alive, never to die. <laughs> So I want to talk about this living hope if, uh, in, from a few different angles because he describes that the inheritance here, he gives three words to qualify it. He says that it is um, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And what does that mean? Well, first off, like I said before, it means that it isn't a dead hope. This hope will never perish. It's never going to die. It's going to be around forever. But it also isn't a false hope. It isn't a lie. It's true. It's undefiled. It is a pure hope. It is an incorruptible hope. It will always be true and real. And it isn't a fleeting hope. There are hopes that you have in this world that will go away. How you want your kids to be raised, that's going to go away at one point, and you're going to recognize you're going to have to just grapple with what God's given you, um, which is sometimes better than you deserve, actually, for me. <laughs> um, but um, it's not a fleeting hope. It is a hope that will never diminish in beauty, and in fact, it will grow in its intensity of beauty and joy with each passing moment. That's the kind of hope that we have. It is an inheritance that is guaranteed. We, if you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him, completely belong to this hope 
And this hope completely belongs to us. So we have to ask this. Whenever you read something ridiculous or sounds crazy in the Bible, you have to ask, how in the world is this person saying this? What would cause a human being to write this down? (laughs) And what we would say is, why would Peter feel such confidence in saying such things to these believers that they have a hope for them? And where he says the hope is currently located makes all the difference. The hope is kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. Sounds a lot like Colossians, doesn't it? Laid up in heaven. Sounds like there might be a common author here. There was. God. Our hope is secure in heaven. We have a guarantee of this hope, and we know why we're guaranteed this hope, because of the last line, verse 5, where it says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This who he is talking about is you and me. It is you and me. And so what he is saying right now is that right now in this moment, if you are a believer, and if you love Christ Jesus, God is exerting incredible amounts of power on your heart right now. And he is guarding you and protecting you and securing you right now, every moment to moment that is happening to you right now inside your heart as a believer. And it's happening through the means of faith. That this inexplicable assurance and conviction that you have that not only was Christ Jesus real, but that he died and rose again, and that I have, by trusting in his name, forgiveness of sins, that is an act of God in your heart right now. And it is being held together because he is guarding you through faith. <clears throat> and the, the, the focal point of this is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When Christ returns, these are what all these texts have been pointing to, the entire universe will shudder, the sky will break open like tissue paper, and he will be there in our faith. The faith that he's describing right there will be it become sight. We will see him as he is. This is a real day. We need to dwell on this. I think oftentimes we relegate this to a part of our mind where all the other fantasies and fairy tales live. This is a day that will happen in human history. And get this, it is coming towards us. Believers enjoy like a freight train. It is coming for us. And on that day, no one's going to deny him. No one's going to question about whether or not he's real or who he is. Everyone, whether alive or dead, will see the one for whom all things are made. That's going to happen. They will see him and they will see him, we will see him, as he really is. Colossians 3 tells us what happens when this, when this takes place. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. When he appears, we will be like him, imperishable, immortal, undefiled, full of glory. And the curse of sin and death that's on this wor- world, that's hung over us, over our families, <laughs> over the people we love, will be suddenly brought to an end and will be swallowed up forever. We will finally be free from the subjection to futility, from the pain that this world has, from the bondage that this world has to corruption. 
<laughs> but we have to ask now, <clears throat> that glorification that we just described, that massive, stunning, staggering reality that is true, is that ultimately what this hope is pointing to? Or is this living hope pointing to something even further, deeper, beyond that? And if we were to ask Peter, Peter would say, yes, it is. Um, It is pointing to something. He closes the gap for us. Peter, why did Jesus die? Ultimately, what was he doing in accomplishing the cross? Was it just for us to live in a glorified state for eternity, sinless and without pain? Or is there something further out beyond that? Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18 this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. The goal of the cross, the goal of the gospel, the goal of Christianity, the goal of risen hope, the goal of every believer in the world <coughs> is very, um, very specific. And that is that we might be brought to God by Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus died. Um, The object of our hope isn't what we will be. That is simply a means to experience the object of our hope. The object of our hope is who we will be with. Jesus Christ died so that he might bring us home to his Father. And I really, want, I really want you to believe this because it is difficult for us to understand and contemplate this. There is a kind of beauty that exists in reality that is so enrapturing, so captivating, so powerful, so beautiful and glorious that we can literally be lavished by it and embrace it for an eternity and still only scratch the surface of its vast trenches of joy. That's real, and that happens in the presence of one being, God. Psalm 16 says that um, at your right hand is joy, a fullness of joy, and in your presence is pleasures forevermore. At, at the right hand of God and in the presence of God, there is a kind of joy that is full, immeasurably full, and infinite. Never decreases, never diminishes. That's a real kind of joy. And I want to close with one passage from Revelation just to paint a picture of what this looks like. Worship team, if you want to come back up again. <coughs> Please see this with your eyes, the eyes of your heart. Um, think about what this is going to be like. Um, This day that is described in Revelations will be, even though it seems distant to us now, more real to us in that moment than anything we experience in this life. Anything we experience in this life. And if you do believe, if you do trust in Christ, we're going to have communion here as we do worship. Um, I I want you to recognize that this hope was not cheap. This living hope was not cheap. This hope had infinite worth, and therefore there was only one person's blood that could actually purchase it, Christ Jesus. So when you take the elements, please remember that his sacrifice um, 
And his resurrection is what actually acquired us the hope that we have, the risen hope that we have, that he will one day come back for us. Revelation 21 describes this day in very vivid terms. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, (coughs) and the sea was no more. No more futility, no more corruption ever again. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He, this is God, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, the, the living hope, the risen hope, the hope that we see in Scripture declared over and over and over again is you ultimately. And I know that as we survey the world that we have right now, it is very difficult to see that very hard for us to understand how there could be any goodness at the end of this thing. Father, our hearts go out for the folks in the southeast that were hammered by those hurricanes. Our hearts go out for the people in Mexico who who were wrecked so terribly by the earthquakes, Father, and for the people in Nevada now that are suffering great loss, Father, because of just insanity and futility and corruption. Father, I pray that the living hope that Peter talks about will become so real to us as a body of believers that we will be able to take from the future the grace and the hope that we have in God and bring it out into the world and the communities that we have around us. (laughs) The people who are suffering, the people who are struggling, the people who are having difficulty, people, places that are suffering from great need and loss around the world and locally, Father, that you would use us powerfully to that end. Father, I ask that we would recognize and embrace by knowing God who our ultimate hope is and that we would recognize that we can actually taste that right now by reading scripture and by praying and by seeking him on a daily basis. We can go to him and and think and, and, and experience a small fraction of what it will be like to be in his presence, Father. I pray that we would all be able to embrace this living hope and that you would do a great work in our hearts as we sing songs, as we take communion, as we consider just the great power that is being exerted on us right now to love you and to desire you and to long for you as we ought to. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.